Well, let's turn together this morning to 1 Samuel 11. We're going to dive right in this morning to the text and see what we can learn from it on account of time. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we read it. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time of worship that you have set aside for us. God, may we see and understand that this is not a matter of uh, simple obedience, something that we must do because you command us to, but God, that you command us to do so because it's for our good. God, thank you that you've set aside this time of worship this morning and called us to it. God, that you meet here with us, that you fill uh, our praises, that you make us acceptable, God, and that you speak to us. And so we pray simply now that you would do that as we turn to your holy and inerrant word. We pray that you would show it to us with new uh, light, God, that you would open it to us, that we would be able to understand it, that you would give us wisdom and clarity as we read it, or that you would use this passage and this story that, we are, that we're going to read this morning to write the truth of the gospel upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Samuel 11 says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days, despite Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, and he cut them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. 
There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So we're in the midst of this uh, wonderful account where the people of Israel and their sin have demanded a king of God so that they could be like the nations, and God, according to his grace and mercy, has uh, seen fit to bestow upon them Samuel. He has answered their plea. He has heard their cry. And Samuel has been anointed king privately by Samuel. And Saul has been appointed or set aside as king publicly in the most uh, in, in the previous chapter that we read at the end of chapter 10. Uh, he has been publicly appointed to the kingship over Israel. But it is the case that Saul, although he is now Technically, I guess, and for all intents and purposes, he's king by God's appointment. And uh, it has been made public, and Samuel has confirmed this. Uh, there is trouble. There, there's trouble all around. I mean, the children of Israel are still in the midst of great and under great oppression by the Philistines. And so their, their enemies are surrounding them on many sides. Uh, and they are still struggling under the weight of this oppression. But it's not only this sort of external trouble that is upon the children of Israel. There's a great struggle inwardly as well, because at the end of chapter 10, if you remember, there were these worthless fellows, the scripture tells us, these worthless men who said, who is this Saul and how is it that he will save us? He doesn't have any ability to save us. And they called his appointment into question and they were not interested in following Saul's leadership. So you've got to understand that that's a little bit of the situation into which Saul has become king. And so this is, as far as we know, this is Saul's first action as king. And you'll notice if you're into titles, I'm not. They're not usually very good. But the title of the sermon is, What a Start. Uh, this is a really good day for Saul, and this is an amazing beginning to his kingship over Israel. Remember, this is the Saul that was sort of fleeing a bit from the idea of becoming king. He did not share the news immediately with his uncle. He went right back to the farm and right back to his duties of plowing the fields and tending the donkeys and the oxen. He did not tell his uncle what had come of him. And then at his public announcement as king, when the children of Israel looked around to find this man, Saul, whom God appointed publicly according to the lots had fallen on him, don't you remember that he was nowhere to be found? He was hiding among the baggage. God had to show them where he was physically and literally. And they had to, it says, drag him out from amongst the baggage so that he could be appointed as king. Almost a comical story. That same Saul is now stirred up by the Spirit of God to a profound act of leadership. And that—that that is that is the theme of this section, what God can do and, and what God is going to do. And, and not, not only on account of Saul and his inability, but on account of God's fame and God's own name. For God would not be questioned by the wicked and worthless fellows who would not follow Saul's leadership. The men in Israel amongst their own ranks who did not approve of God's appointment of Saul to be king, God was not going to be told that, how will this man save us? Saul will never be able to deliver us like God has promised. God was not going to be questioned and shown up. And so in a very real way, God is going to use Saul 
in this first event, this first action as king to set him on the throne in a very public and significant way. And he is going to use him to substantiate his own promises for deliverance to his people. And the Spirit of God is going to do this. But before we consider the the points uh, of the sermon, I think, as we try to learn from it, we've got to do a little bit of history. I try not to give you guys too much of a history lesson, but as we're in the Old Testament and some of these things in order to rightly understand, I think, it's, I think it's extremely important that we get a little bit of history behind some of these. And so let's consider just the the situation of what takes place as this Nahash the Ammonite comes up and besieges, it says, this little city, Jabesh Gilead. And then the idea is that they have now come under his uh, rule. He has besieged them and taken them hostage or captive. They are now uh, servants to this Nahash the Ammonite. They plea on the basis of a treaty, right? Treaty law. They, they want to make a treaty uh, with him. Please make a treaty with us and we will serve you. So they're trying to strike a deal with this Nahash the Ammonite because they have he has conquered them and besieged their city, and uh, he is gonna. They're gonna request of him some time to seek deliverance, and it's. It, it, we're not 100 percent sure why he would have even agreed to such an action, but he does miraculously, probably on account of his own military pride that you know sort of let them seek help from whomever they will. Uh, he probably loved that they were sitting and squirming under his thumb and with, you know, looking at every corner at how they could be delivered and how they could be saved and frantic and, you know, frantically running around and fretting. And so probably in his pride, he allows this period of time that they might seek out help from someone else. But so look, he is making this threat. I will gouge out all of your eyes and bring disgrace upon Israel. So he says, I'll make this treaty with you and I will not kill all of you, but I'm going to, I'm going to subject you to me and ultimately bring disgrace upon your God by gouging out all of your right eyes. So we've, we've got to keep in mind here that the tribes of Israel are scattered north and south, sort of far and wide. And from where Saul is in Gibeah, Okay, It is a substantial journey to this city, Jabesh Gilead. It would have been located across the Jordan River over on the eastern side. And it would have been approximately maybe a two days journey, some 42 miles, which, you know, a little less than from here to Hattiesburg. That doesn't seem like much. But if you have no car and real no, no quick means to get there, that's a pretty long trek. You're going to set out and hike it. So it's a pretty pretty good piece between these two geographically, and I only point that out because it is likely then that not all of the Israelites among the tribes scattered north and south, that they would have known who Saul was. Maybe they had heard rumors that had spread that God had appointed a king over Israel according to their request. Maybe they had heard that it was Saul. Maybe they had heard that it was this Saul of Gibeah. Maybe they had heard something about him. Maybe they had not heard any of the above. We don't know, but it's very likely that they are in a period of question and uh, you know limbo, if you will. They have pleaded uh, with the elders of Israel to to appoint them a king over them so that they can be like the nations, so that they can receive this at least in their minds, so that they can be protected uh, from their enemies, so that they can be delivered. They probably have not heard too much about Saul. 
So they're in limbo. They are in their own minds without a king. They do not really know where to turn. And it is then that these Ammonites come upon them. Now, the Ammonites are an interesting people because they have... As, as we're going as we'll find out, and as as we know from Scripture, they they are sort of a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites. There's a long-standing uh, turbulence between the Ammonites and the Israelites. But the Ammonites are the people who possess uh, a massive territory on the east side of the Jordan River, so relatively close to this little Jabesh. Gilead. They would have possessed this massive territory over to the east side, and they would have been led by this Nahash, the Ammonite. We do not know if he was their king, probably not, but maybe some sort of military leader. But it says that Nahash, the Ammonite, has come up against them, as we said a moment ago. Uh, he has begun to threaten them. They, uh, he, according to God's providence, miraculously agrees to give them seven days to find some help and if, and if they can't and they have to make this treaty and this deal that they have struck with him, he is going to gouge out their right eyes. And I know that some of you have study Bibles. I have study Bibles. And if yours uh, have a note, it may have a note like mine. Uh, and it tells us that in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that has been found, that there is a story of this Nahash the Ammonite or Nahash the king of the Ammonites. There are some discrepancies, but it tells us the story that's no longer represented in the text here about this Nahash the Ammonite who had already been going about the land, gouging out the right eyes of the Transjordan Gadites and the Reubenites. So much so, or to the extent that, some 7,000 men have fled to guess where? Jabesh Gilead. Now, there are some discrepancies historically in this text. We don't, it's not clear why it's been dropped or why it's not present here. We're not even 100% sure to its validity. What we know, though, to be definitely and literally sure, according to God's word, is that this tyrant, Nahash the Ammonite, is pursuing these men of Jabesh Gilead to subjugate them under his rule and to disgrace not only them, but by extension, to make a disgrace of the God upon whom they depended. Remember, they had no king, at least in the physical sense. Their king was God. They depended upon him for protection and provision. And the Philistines who sought to oppress the Israelites, as we have already seen, they knew all too well about the provision and the care of this King Yahweh of the Israelites, didn't they? So that he would have been known, and it would have been known far and wide among the opponents to Israel, that though they did not have a king of a man, their king was the king of all men. And they served God and God only. Now, Unbeknownst maybe to the Ammonites, they have sinned and demanded a man-king. But that's neither here nor there. Nahash the Ammonite is pursuing these men of Jabesh-Gilead that he might disgrace the God upon whom they depend. And so he's going to do so by gouging out their right eye. Let me, let me help you with this. This is a big deal in that day. Again, a little history. What, what significance is it that you're going to gouge out the right eye? If you, if you learn something about history, this was one of the maybe more common than it should have been practices of subjugating and making men useless in war. Because what they did is they held a shield with their left arm. Most, most people in that day, as now, most of the population was right-handed. 
more than likely. And so you would have held your sword in your right hand and you would have held a large shield in your left hand. And so you had to have a right eye on this side of your body so that you could peek around the shield. So that if someone gouged out your right eye, they took away your ability, pretty much they took away your ability to fight. They made you useless in the ability to defend your country, to defend your family, to defend your land and the things that you had. You were, you, you were made totally useless in war. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Because it forces you to depend upon another for protection. You cannot defend yourself. You cannot take up in arms on account of your own family and your own land and your own beliefs. You are stricken, if you will, to become subjects of another's rule that he might provide you for the protection and provision that you need. So do you see what he's doing here? He's threatening to gouge out their right eyes. He means to make them his subjects. He means to demand their allegiance and to rob it from God. So that do you see that if if he can do this for the Israelites, for even some of them, then he can claim that the Israelites' God is nothing when compared to him. For they serve him and trust in him and look to him. And as I've said, there's a long-standing trouble between the Ammonites and the Israelites. This is not their first run-in with one another, and I think that it's important that we realize that. I mean, when you go back to Judges, not too many years prior to the event that is before us this morning, uh, the Israelites are battling with the Ammonites. There are multiple instances of this. Uh, There's a certain bitterness between the two nations as well because the Ammonites were the product and the heritage of the wicked and incestuous relationship of Lot with his daughters. So there is Lot who has this wicked and incestuous relationship with his daughters, and it is from that relationship, and it is the heritage of that relationship that becomes the Ammonites. So in some way they're related. But they're wicked and they're pagan and they do not serve God. So there is this deep and long-standing bitterness between these two nations. And then one last historical point here that I think is important in order to help us grasp the events in their entirety that, are, in their entirety that unfold here before us. Um, we must also realize that between Gibeah, Saul's land and Saul's city, between Gibeah and Jabesh-Gilead over on the east of the Jordan and far north, some 42 miles away, there would have been a strong blood tie between the people in these two locations. We know if you go back to Judges 20 and 21, I would encourage you to go back and read a little bit of Judges 20 and 21, the very end of the book of Judges there, uh, after the service this morning. It's not good reading. It's messy and difficult and gruesome, to say the least. It's full of wickedness. Uh, But we don't have time to deal with that in its entirety this morning. But at the end of chapter 21 and the end of the story of Judges, near the end of the story, 400 virgins are taken from Jabesh-Gilead and brought to, to become the wives of the men, guess where? In Gibeah, where there has been a huge slaughter of men and women and all of most of the available women of marrying age are no longer alive. And so there's this, there's this whole issue of where they're not going to take wives from anywhere else. You know. And so there are 400 virgins brought from Jabesh Gilead some years prior that are brought to become the wives of the men in Gibeah. 
So that you can see then in verse 4 when it says that the messengers come to Gibeah where Saul is and they report the matter of the oppression of Nahash the Ammonite in the ears of the people. What? That all the people wept bitterly. Why? Because for many of the women there, they were weeping for their families. Do you see? See, it changes it. Moms and dads and brothers and sisters and grandparents and cousins. There were these strong ties between these two nations, between these two cities, Gibeah and Jabesh-Gilead. And so we're going to see a, a, a remarkable story unfold. What is it that we can learn as we turn now to the story itself and try to bring some help and some application after all the history. What is it that we can learn? Well, the first thing that I think is crucial for us to see here is that under the oppression of the Ammonites, the men and the elders of Jabesh Gilead are looking for help in all the wrong places. Now, if you're into alliteration, that one's not going to fit real well. You can consider this their plea for help. I prefer the first. They were looking for help in all the wrong places. Let's go back to the story. It says, look at, look at verse 1, Nahash the Ammonite comes up to besiege Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. He said, On this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes and bring disgrace upon Israel. So the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days that we may send messengers through the territory of Israel, then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Friends, the first problem here is that they were going to try to find deliverance from someone, from a man. Notice what the, notice what the elders of Jabesh Gilead did not do. They did not say, give us seven days, that we might set our face to the Lord God Almighty. To our king, to Yahweh, whom we serve and whom has, who has already delivered and protected us in so many historical situations. They did not say, give us time that we might turn to him and he will smoke you. They said, let us send out messengers to all of our friends to see if there be some mighty man among one of the other tribes of Israel, one of the other cities of Israel, that they might come to our aid and deliver us. Friends, and let's, it cannot be understated here. It cannot be understated the significance of this reality that they were looking to a man. I think the commentators that say, I think, are completely correct in doing so, that it is because they have actually surrendered their allegiance to God and totally abandoned the covenant that they made with Him in order to immediately, it seems almost, enter into a covenant with this pagan. What do they say? Look at the language. Make a treaty with us. Make a covenant with us. Make a binding agreement with us. And what? We will serve you. So that if there's not a man that's going to come and deliver us and fix our problem, just like that, we're yours. Even if you have to gouge out our right eyes, we will come up to you and you can do whatever you see fit. And it, it smacks, doesn't it, of the plea, give us a king so that we can be like the nations. They were so willing, so quickly, at such great expense to themselves to become subjects of one of the nations. 
to just abandon their heritage and the kingship of God and the covenant that they had made with him and the relationship that they had with him for what they seemed to be some sense of temporal protection and provision. Do you see? The grass for them seemed greener. Friends, where do we turn for help? I mean, I'm pretty sure that at least currently there are no neighboring cities that are besieging our neighborhoods and demanding that we serve them. And if, and if they're not to kill us all, that, they, that they're given permission to gouge out our right eyes. But, friends, we labor and we struggle and we need help. When trouble comes upon us, are we looking for help in all the wrong places? Do we look to our financial uh, stability, to our 401K, to our bank account, to our job that provides us with that stability? You know, do we look to our parents? Do we look to our friends? Do we look to ourselves? Where do we go? Friends, I think part of the point of this first section and this sad commentary about the willingness of the men of Jabesh-Gilead to simply abandon their relationship with God if some man did not come to deliver them and to enter into this treaty with the Ammonites and to be subjected to them and to bring disgrace upon themselves and the God they serve. Friends, I think it's apropos that we think about it like this. Would we rather be a persecuted member of God's kingdom than to some degree a comfortable member of a man's kingdom. It brings to mind Psalm 84, doesn't it? That I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the unrighteous. Friends, what are we willing to give up to maintain the covenant commitment that God has made with us and that we have made with Him? Do we look around at the situation of the wicked? Do we look around at our neighbors and their finances and their marriages and their children and their relationships and do we think, man, that looks so much better? That if I could just be like them, if I could just have it like them, if I could just have a job like theirs or a wife like theirs or children like theirs, if I could just be as smart as they were or as good looking as they are, friends, if that's our perspective, then we will do anything. We will give up our right eye to be like them. And it will be at the expense of God's name. And it will be at the expense of God's glory. And it will be at the expense of our relationship with him. For when we come to trust in the things of men, we can no longer trust in the things of God. For the scripture tells us you cannot serve God and man. Friends, do you see? They were looking for help in all the wrong places. It begs the question of us, where do we go when trouble comes? Secondly, they would receive help indeed. But let us not be confused. Their help did not come from man. So if the first P was their plea for help, the second plea is the power for their help. They did receive help. 
And it may look to us in the story like it came from a man, that man being Saul. But let us not be confused that their deliverance did not come from a man. Let us go down to the end of the story and consider Saul's own commentary on the situation. In verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them that we may be put to death. But Saul said, no man shall be put to death this day because today the Lord has brought salvation in Israel. Do you see that Saul's perspective on the events of that day were not that he had done something of great valor and might, but that God, his king through him, had delivered his own people. When we go back and we consider the events of the the military advancement of Saul against them, Saul hears about what is going to come upon the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and he hears that all of the people in Gibeah are weeping for their family members in Jabesh. And he says, why is it that they are weeping? In verse 4 and 5, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. What is wrong with the people, he asked. Why is it that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And then look, here it is in verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Friends, this is a righteous, vehement anger that probably we cannot even understand. And when we go down and consider in depth the language and the detail of verses 6 through verse 11, we must be forced, though we don't have time to look at all of them this morning, we must be forced to go back and consider the similarities between what happened in the hearts and in the lives of the judges over Israel when God sent them in mighty, miraculous fashion to judge the wickedness in Israel. So that all the things, like in Samson's case, when he does these mighty deeds of, you know, killing thousands of men and taking down, you know, uh, when he does all of these things that he does, it says, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he did these things. Friends, the similarities here, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Then he splits the oxen. This is something that takes place from another judge in the story of Judges. He splits the oxen and he sends them out through the countryside in order to encourage, I guess you can call it encourage, the men of Israel to come out. The language there to not, he says, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. That is that they do not come out to war with him. That's the, it's the idea there that they do not come out in arms alongside him. So the dread, who? Not of Saul. Not the dread and the fear of the, the Saul's kingship and his ability to separate all their oxen and to kill them and split them in two. But the dread of the Lord fell upon the men of Israel. Do you see that the God, that God is working so that they came out as one man? So that when Saul mustered them together at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Now it's time to go to war. And, you know, we we look back at these situations in the Bible and ask so many questions. It seems so gruesome and brutal. Um, This is not a, a sermon about that this morning, but let me just say briefly one very important answer to the question why all the 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 bloodshed in the old testament and god's slaughtering of so many 
the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon men so that they do all sorts of, uh, in our eyes, terrible, gruesome things. Friends, the gruesomeness of the judgment points to the gruesomeness of the sin that it is judging. The problem in our day and in our minds and in our hearts is that we do not see sin the way that God does. And friends, the oppression of these Ammonites against God's people was a wicked and terrible thing before the Lord. And God would not be undone. God's people would stand according to God's promise. He had declared already that Saul would deliver his people, and Saul would, because God's promises are sure and his word is eternal. So, so let that be sufficient for now, but it is time to go to war. They are 330,000 strong, and so they send the message. Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, to the men of Jabesh, you shall have your deliverance. And so the men of Jabesh pass it along to Nahash. Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you can do with us whatever seems good to you. (laughs) You can imagine when they sent that message, they were thinking, yeah, if you're able to withstand it. And look at verse 11. And so the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. Notice the Spirit of the Lord gave him great wisdom, military wisdom making battle decisions so that they come into the midst of the camp, that is, of the Ammonites in the morning watch. Notice they did not sneak in by night. Notice they did not come under the cloak of darkness. They marched in during the morning watch according to the leadership and the power of the Spirit of God and struck down the Ammonites from the morning watch until the heat of the day. Folks, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good long while to be slaying the Ammonites. And those who survived, that is the Ammonites, they were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Friends, it was an, it was an absolute blowout. It, they abolished the Ammonites. I mean, they, they demolished them that day. And they did so by the power and the working of the Lord. Friends, the point here. The point here is to help us to see that the Spirit of God saved the men of Jabesh-Gilead, not Saul, their man-king. It's not a story that is to confirm the wickedness of the men of Israel so that what they really did need was a man to be their king so that Saul, now that they had a man-king like they had asked in their sin, that somehow everything was so much better. It was to rebuke their wickedness and to expose their helplessness. For what they needed was to be led and delivered by the Spirit of God. Ralph Davis put it this way. He said, Israel cannot afford to miss the point here. Salvation came not because Israel now had a king, but because the king of Israel had Yahweh's spirit. It is not the institution of kingship but the power of the Spirit that brings deliverance. And one last point about the working of the Spirit here that I think should not be missed. And this is also by way of the historical introduction that I gave you at the beginning. Friends, do you see that the Spirit of God worked to deliver Jabesh and the inhabitants of that city with a man from Gibeah? That may not mean much to you, but, but, but what you should know is this, that when you go back to study Judges 20 and 21 about the blood ties between Gibeah and the familial ties between Gibeah and Jabesh, what you find is this, that in Gibeah, the men 
in utter perversion and wickedness and debauchery and then accompanied by their total unwillingness to repent of their grievous actions against the Lord incited a bloody civil war among the children of Israel. Gibeah was a despised and a spiritually destitute place. Friends, let it be a picture to us that it was from the darkness of Gibeah that just a few years later that God brings the light of salvation. That from the darkness and wickedness, the light of deliverance must come. It is from Saul of Gibeah. Let it be an encouragement to you this morning that from your darkness and depravity, the power of God's Spirit can bring the light of salvation. What a great picture it is of the gospel and the power of God's Spirit to work in the darkness. Friends, go back and read Judges. It does not leave Gibeah in a a nice light. What a difference the Spirit of God has made in a few years that it is now from Gibeah that deliverance must come. Finally, quickly, as we close, they're looking for help in all the wrong places. That help would come, but it would not be from a man. That is the plea for help. That is their power for help being God's spirit. And then thirdly and finally, we see Samuel and Saul together giving credit as, giving credit where credit is due. This is then the product of their help. So that in the last few verses of this text, very simply what we see is that Saul and Samuel, particularly Saul, he does not take advantage of a situation that could bring about great fame and might and allegiance to himself. Now remember, this is, this is Saul, the timid young man who was hiding among the baggage, who may be the butt of many jokes of the Israelites about that day. Ha, 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 King Saul who could not be found. What a mighty king he is. This is Saul, who has now marched into the Ammonite territory and has slaughtered them by the rushing of the Spirit of the Lord. So the people, in their act of showing allegiance, say to Samuel, God's prophet in Israel, Who is it that said that Saul could not reign over us? Bring them out here that we can slaughter them as well. You see, Saul could have said, Yes, let them know how dumb they were. Let all know that you will serve Saul and that Saul will protect you and Saul will be your king and that he can reign over you. But that's not what Saul says, is it? Saul intervenes, an act of mercy and righteousness, and he says, No, today not a man shall taste death because today the Lord has brought salvation to Israel. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And then look at the result here, the product. So Samuel, the prophet, then says to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. What does that mean, to renew the kingdom? So all the people went to Gilgal, and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, and they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Friends, Samuel, together with Saul, They pointed to the Lord and they declared that what was needed was a renewal of God's kingdom. I think what they did that day in Gilgal, and we're going to see the nature of Samuel, uh, the address there in chapter 12 that is to come, but we don't have to wait. I mean, I think it's clear that they came together with the men who were the worthless fellows, the defectors under Saul's leadership, 
And what? They renewed the kingdom there. They renewed their allegiance to Saul, but only in so much as they saw Saul as utterly under the leadership and kingship of God. So that by extension and the renewal of the kingdom of Israel, they were renewing themselves to God's uh, kingdom and renewing their allegiance to him. And I think this is the need for all of our hearts, is it not? To come before the Lord, to recognize his kingship, to come to him for help and to trust in him and to give him credit for the power of his spirit that is at work in us. Friends, let us come this morning to renew the kingdom. Let us come this morning to renew our allegiance to God and his kingship over our hearts. Let us renew our allegiance and our affections to Christ our Savior and our trust in his rule over us and the salvation that he brings us. In just a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's table together to reflect upon Christ Jesus and what he's done for us. Friends, let us in that time renew the kingdom. Let us repent of our sin and our unwillingness to turn to God for help and our inabilities to trust in him. Friends, like the children of Israel at Gilgal that day, let us make a peace offering with the Lord and renew the kingdom as we renew our faith, our trust, our hope in him. Friends, if the Spirit of God does not work to save us, then we will be lost. Let's pray. God, as we come to your table now, we pray that you would help us to think carefully about what you've done for us in Christ. That we would seek to worship and glorify you for the power of your Spirit the power of your spirit that led him in perfect righteousness, the power of your spirit that um, by which he hung upon the cross and atoned for our sin, the power of your spirit that raised him from the dead. And God, may we renew our allegiance to you and to the power of your spirit to bring us to that righteousness, to forgive us of our sins, and to bring us to life again in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, help us to remember God, and help us to renew our covenant with you. God, to realize that it's better to be a doorkeeper in your house than to be a king amongst men. God, may we serve you and serve you only this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.